Justin was gracious and read a portion of Romans, uh, a large portion, right? That's it's a long chapter. Thank you for laboring through that, Justin. I, I appreciate it. There's no way that we could have read all of that and still had much time to cover anything else. And we could certainly spend a long time there in chapter eight. There's so much that is there. Um, I've been teaching through the book of Romans on Wednesday night with our seventh through twelfth grade youth, and so. Uh, when I was uh, preparing to preach this morning, that's what you get. You get, uh, you get what I've been already working on and studying, and uh, hopefully it'll be a blessing in your life. It is in mine. Uh, to catch you up with where the youth are at, uh, we're not going to go through all of Romans. Uh, that, that would certainly take too long. But uh, let's, let's survey real quick where, uh, where we're at leading up to, uh, to chapter 8, and then We'll, uh, we'll get to this morning's message. In Romans chapter 1, we see that man is enslaved to sin. Paul has his introduction there, but I, I would say that that is the main theme of Romans chapter 1. Man is enslaved to sin. We have a problem. Romans chapter 2, man cannot be set free by keeping the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. It is powerless to save man from his position of guilty before God due to his sin. Romans chapter 3, God has done what man in his sin could not accomplish through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God has done it through Jesus. Romans chapter 4, by God's grace through faith in Jesus, mankind can share in the covenant promises that God established with Abraham and his household for future generations. Those promises are based entirely on Jesus' work and God's work, even in the, the symbolism of the covenant that was carried out at the time that it was formed. And man's responsibility in that is the same as Abraham's, was to believe God, to put their faith in God. Romans chapter 5, we see justification and how man can have a legal right standing before God by faith in Christ. Then Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 Paul starts to unpack for us our relationship now that we are in Christ to sin and the law and our position before Jesus uh, in this newness of life that we have. So we see, for instance, in 6 that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we have a new master and a new life in Christ. Uh, we see in Romans 7 that we are no longer slaves to the law. Uh, though the law is not sinful itself, it cannot accomplish what our relationship with Christ is meant to. And Justin read for us Romans chapter 8, which deals with our position before God, and there no longer being condemnation for our sin, and the relationship that we share as a part of his family, and so much more that we could spend much more than this morning on. Uh, so Romans is dealing with the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus Christ has accomplished in his righteous life, in his sacrificial death, what you could not for your sin. Because you have sinned against God, God sees you as a transgressor, a lawbreaker, one who has violated the law that he has established, that he holds us to. And this is nothing new. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you'll know that we, we don't shy away from dealing with that fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And with that said, if you are in a position this morning to where 
you do not have a relationship with God, you need to understand that the judgment for sin is death and eternal condemnation and a literal hell separated from God for all eternity. And that is not God's desire for his people, but rather he has taken the wrath of God upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ to pay for sin, to do what you and I could not do. And it is glorious. And so, if you're striving with sin or perfection or trying to pull yourself up by the bootstraps or just get better before you come to God or get on terms with what God wants for your life, you need to understand there is nothing you can do to fix this relationship with God that has been broken by sin. It does not depend on you. It depends on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so you should repent and be saved, and we will talk more about that later on. But this morning, I want us to look at this message that Paul is going around preaching and proclaiming. Um, And we're going to do that by opening up the Bible and taking a look together in Romans chapter 15. The Apostle Paul, who penned much of the New Testament writings, uh, dedicated his life uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ among the Gentiles. He would travel around from place to place, from city to city, from country to country, proclaiming the same message, Christ crucified. Uh, He proclaimed this message because, like we've already said, it is the only means of salvation for man to be reconciled to God and have a right relationship with him. Uh, For this message, he was shipwrecked, he was deserted, he was snake bit, he was imprisoned multiple times, beaten multiple times. He was arrested, put on trial, falsely accused, stoned, put under house arrest, imprisoned again, and he was ready to die for Christ, although the Bible does not record how Paul died. Um, This was the message that he preached the good news that man could be reconciled to God because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, The aim of Paul's ministry, I believe, is pointed out for us in chapter 15. And that's why we're going to skip there and take a look at it together. This guy who suffered much and committed his life to so much, uh, why did he do it? What was the point? What was the aim? And the reason why we're looking at it is because I believe it is the aim of all Christian ministry. And if we're not careful, we'll look at chapter 15 and we may miss that. Look with me at verse 14. Paul's writing and he says, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as a reminder, or I'm sorry, as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Eilerkrim, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard, they shall understand. Um, if I, I'm going to lay out some points because I think it'll be helpful to accomplish the purposes of moving along this morning for us. Point number one would be sanctification is the aim of Christian missions. Now, certainly the aim of Christian missions as we share the gospel, we would see people repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. But then we don't go home and say, well, I hope that works out. And that's it. You pray a prayer, you be baptized, good job, and we're done. Here's where I get this, this sanctification. I get this from the text. In verse 16, Paul says his aim is to see the Gentiles sanctified. And then verse 18, they are to be made obedient. Um, what is sanctification? other than a religious word uh, that, is, that is fancy. Uh, what is sanctification? Uh, I was listening to a sermon, uh, and I heard John Piper say, uh, I, think, I think he said it the year I was born. Uh, he, I was looking at the timestamp on that. John Piper's been preaching sermons that I listened to longer than I've been alive. And uh, I'm not directly quoting him on this, but he said it's one of those words that, you don't have to know. It's kind of irrelevant to us, the word itself. Much like medical terms that uh, we would expect doctors to casually pass around again and again, the word itself may be irrelevant, but the reality of what it means for us is very relevant. It is critical. And so this word sanctification, although we might not throw that around unless we're working through the New Testament or talking about the work of Christ in the church or you're a pastor or in church settings or just really like these types of big words so that you can impress your friends. Uh, and by the way, sanctification is not a very good word to impress your friends with. Uh, they, they won't be impressed. Um, the reality that it represents is critical for God's people. It's critical for God's people. What does it mean? Well, the word sanctified comes from Two words that put together mean make holy. I'm not a linguist. We're not going to go further than that. It means to make holy. Sanctified. Sanctification. To make holy. But that raises another question, doesn't it? Because holiness is a word that we don't always think rightly about. And it's a word that we don't always even use well. And quite frankly, the secular world around us uses it pretty flippantly for all sorts of things. They apply it to cows. They apply it to moly. I'm not sure what moly is. So hopefully I don't get in trouble for saying it. But we put the word holy with all sorts of things. What does that mean? What do we mean when we say 
Sanctification is to make holy. Well, the word holy, we would say that that is to set apart. And it's not to set apart in terms of, well, you're organizing a closet and we're going to set this thing apart and that thing apart. It's more specific than that. Excuse me. Instead, this is setting apart unto God in a way that is acceptable for his use and his purpose for his glory. This is the work that should be the aim in the hearts and lives of Christian missions. And I believe that Paul is telling us here in Romans 15 that that is the aim of the work that he has been about under the leadership of Jesus Christ in his life. Your sanctification. Let's see that together. Verse 16. He says, That I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified, there's that word again, by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. Um, if we are going to understand this word sanctification and what does that look like in our life, I think that Paul's Summary here, although I don't know that he means it as one, is helpful. In verse 15 and verse 18, Paul says that he has two aims of what he is doing, and I don't think that they are two aims. I think that they are the same aim. Um, your sanctification that he is referring to in verse 15, that he is dedicating himself to, he is taking on, he views himself as a priestly figure in this relationship of God and the Gentiles. And he is ministering to them through the gospel. And by bringing them the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his righteous life, his sinless death, and his atoning work through the cross to give to them what they could not accomplish on their own, to make them legally right before God, righteous before God, forgiven of their sin before God, and to bring them into life everlasting and into the family of God with the Spirit indwelling them. This message that he is proclaiming is Christ crucified. He is seeing himself as bridging the gap with that gospel so that they would be able to bring to God something that is pleasing to them. Well, the question is how? Because we recognize that apart from God, we can't bring anything to him that is acceptable or pleasing. And so he says, what must happen is that they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on further and he says that what Christ has done through his ministry in verse 18, those are the things that he's speaking about, for I will not dare to speak of anything, uh, any of those things which Christ has accomplished through me. What is Christ accomplishing through his word and deed in verse 18? To make the Gentiles obedient. So follow me here. If the aim of Christian missions is sanctification of Christians, and we're saying that that means that they are to be made holy unto God, and we were to ask the question, well, what does that look like? What does that look like practically in our lives? 
I think that Paul is telling us, and the Word of God is telling us here, that your sanctification looks like obedience to God. It looks like obedience to God. So, the aim of Christian missions is laid out for us here as sanctification. I don't think this is the only place that it's laid out for us. If we were to turn to the end of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28, we would see it there as well. And what some call the Great Commission, where Jesus says, starting in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you see the sanctification there? It's there. It's not just proclaim the gospel and see people baptized. It's teaching them to observe. What does the word observe mean? It doesn't mean to just look at. No, it is to live out. It is to continually practice the things which God has commanded. We see sanctification here as well is obedience to God. All right, so we are to proclaim the gospel to all nations that the lost might stop being slaves to sin, which leads to condemnation and be obedient servants of God by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, the fruit of Christ's work in your heart and life is sanctification. Practically, what's it look like to be obedient to God? It's a big word, right? Well, someone has faith in Christ, they become a follower of Christ, and now they actually do their job at work. That's sanctification. They stop having affairs and are faithful to their spouse. That's sanctification. They quit lying. They start giving to the poor. They stop looking at pornography. They start serving God in the body of Christ. Sanctification looks like obeying Jesus. That's what it looks like. Point number two, we aren't practically perfect at this. We are not practically perfect at this. Steve is not here, but I imagine to myself that he might be proud of how many P words I'm going to use in the same sermon. I have no acronyms, but there are things that start with the same letter. So that is somewhat Steve-like. And it sticks in my memory, and I, I tease, but I'm grateful for those things, uh, that, that, the way that he teaches, because I remember it. We aren't practically perfect at this, at obeying God. We are sinners. We are sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the moment that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that doesn't go away. That doesn't go away immediately doesn't go away after immediately doesn't go away a very long time after we've been saved and in fact it doesn't go away at all until you die it's a struggle it's a war it's a conflict turn with me to back a few pages to romans chapter 7 right before what justin read paul deals with this reality 
So he's dealing with in Romans chapter 7, our relationship to sin in this new life in Christ. What does that look like to still have sin in this mortal body and to have to deal with that and struggle with that? but to also have life in Christ where our sin has been dealt with and Christ's righteousness has been put on us? What does that look like? And you can see just the reality of Paul dealing with this. He says, uh, let's back up and let's, let's look at maybe 17 and following. He's talking about sin and he says, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? so thankful for verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This is a continual struggle for the Christian. It is not particularly a struggle for the rest of the world who there is no will in them to serve God. But for us, there is this dichotomy of being in mortal sinful flesh with temptations and struggles and failures and shortcomings when it comes to obeying God. And then a righteousness and freedom from sin that God has put on us. And then I think it would be almost wrong not to venture a little bit into chapter 8 where it starts off saying, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we see there in verse 8, that although the struggle exists, we're not condemned for it. Why? Why? Turn with me to Hebrews. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I'll turn there with you. It is true that we do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But boy, it sounds like the Bible, doesn't it? Um, Hebrews chapter 10. Look with me at verses 11 through 25. And every priest 
understands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, what is he referencing? He's referencing the system that God established in the Old Testament law. I couldn't cover man's sin, but would atone for it. And they would have to continually repeat this process of bringing sacrifices before God and the shedding of blood to atone for sin so that man could be seen as holy unto God and able to enter into any kind of fellowship or relationship with him. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, and he's talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart and into their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. What is he saying? Jesus has dealt with the sins of his people. He has dealt with it completely. He has dealt with it once, and he has dealt with it forever. That is good news to this sinner. And it ought to be good news to you. And you ought to rejoice in the work of God. I almost could not make it through the, the last song that we sang, and it's probably not a surprise for you because I often don't make it through all the songs that we sing. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest, Jesus whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. What he has accomplished, he has accomplished once for all time. But this is a strange verse. Because he is saying that in the person of Jesus, God has perfected once for all time those who are still being sanctified. He's already done it. They've been perfected once for all time but they're the ones that are still being sanctified. And this presents point number three for us. Well, point number two is we aren't practically perfect at obeying God. We are growing in our ability to become more like Christ and to honor him with our bodies. Positionally, we are perfect in Christ. Practically, we are not perfect. We have a problem. Positionally, we are perfect in Christ. He has perfected once for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus has done this work. He's done this work once for all time. And he is faithful to continue this work through the work of his Holy Spirit. Look with me. Let's see. At verse 15 and 17, still in Hebrews chapter 10, we can see this work of his spirit. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he has said before, this is the covenant 
that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. This is the work of God's Spirit in the hearts and lives of his people, sanctification. It is the testimony that the person belongs to God, that they have been made positionally before God in their relationship with him, perfect. How does he do that? This work of sanctification. This work of sanctification. This is what God's Spirit does. It causes us to respond rightly to God so that we are able to look and see and evaluate even in our own hearts. Do I belong to God? Because of the presence of the Spirit of God in the heart and life. If we belong to God, we will respond rightly to God. Though we are practically imperfect, we should be growing to become more obedient to Jesus Christ as long as we are His. Take a look with me. Well, let's see. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to give you a couple other examples of this. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Paul is dealing with uh, what is accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ. He is fighting the argument that, well, obedience to the law saves you. Circumcision is necessary for salvation. And he says obedience to Christ is necessary for salvation. He says faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. I'm sorry. And obedience follows. What does the Spirit of God in Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 6 do? It says, And he has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit of God in the heart and life of the believer that causes us to respond rightly to God and the relationship that we have to him. You'd also turn over with me to, we'll look at this one. Let's go to Ezekiel. And we can see that this is not uniquely a New Testament teaching. But then in chapter 36, we see the same thing. God is promising to his people what he will do through the work of Jesus that we are talking about this morning and that is accomplished uh, through his cross. Look with me at verse 25. He says, then they shall dwell in the land. I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 37. That's not what your verse said, is it? 25. There we go. This is what God does in the heart and life of a believer. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Look at, look at 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. You cannot claim to be a Christian and not be obeying God or at the very least growing in your imperfect obedience to God 
as a believer. You can't. The work of God's Spirit in our hearts and lives testifies that we belong to Him by the way that it leads us to obey God. Point number four, the Spirit of God testifies by causing us to obey. For the Christian who is positionally perfect before God through the work of Jesus Christ, but is practically struggling with these things. We find ourselves like Paul, doing things that we don't want to do. We find ourselves struggling to grow in Christ and walk with Christ. And we feel like we're failing again and again and again. What remains? Well, righteousness and sin are at war in your members. We could go to Galatians and see that where Paul contrasts the fruit of the Spirit versus the flesh. And he said that these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. There is a war. You can read throughout the rest of Paul's writings and you can see a lot of warlike talk. We have the armor of God being talked about in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, where Paul is describing what is necessary for spiritual warfare. You could see at the end of Corinthians where he mimics that same language and tells God's people to stand firm and gives them a set of instructions on what that looks like and what they are to be doing if they would withstand spiritual warfare. We are told that Satan is a foe. He is prowling around like a lion seeking who he can devour. In Ephesians, he is the one who is casting fiery darts, trying to destroy the work of the Lord and God's people's hearts and lives. This is a conflict. When I share the gospel with, uh, with folks and somebody says, I want to be saved. And I am encouraged when they say that I want to be saved. But I encourage them to count the cost. This thing that you are a part of, church, is not for sissies. It is not for those who are going to roll over or stay in the bed and be destroyed and enter into long bouts of constant, uncurable depression over your failings and your shortcomings. Why? Because positionally, you have been perfected once for all time. Although practically, you are being sanctified. God is doing work in you through His Holy Spirit to grow you to become more like Christ. And we're warned in Scripture that you are not to say no to that work. You are not to quench the Holy Spirit. You are to allow God to have His perfect work in you. Make war against your flesh. Put to death the old man which Christ has put to death. Live out the new man who is alive in Christ because of the work of Christ. Live obediently to Christ. This is the aim of the gospel in your heart and life, to make holy vessels that are able to be rightly used, consecrated, set apart for the work of God. But for those that have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, this work is not in their heart and life. Quite frankly, it is absurd when I hear Christians expect those who do not have the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives 
to act as though they are sanctified. To act as though God was at work in their heart and life. And if that has been your motto or your mentality when viewing the world around you, it is, it's not in step with the expectations of God's word. The world around us does not have this work happening in their heart and life. If you are not a Christian, going back to the recap of Romans, you have broken God's law, and there's nothing you can do to make this relationship right. You were created with purpose. You were created for God's glory. You were created to serve him, to honor him, to obey him, and to enjoy him forever. You were created to know him. But your sin is in the way of your relationship with God, and there's nothing you can do about it. But Jesus has already done everything that is necessary in order for you to have life in Christ, forgiveness of sin, Christ's righteousness put on your life. And he is able and willing to positionally make his people perfect if you will, by faith, trust and believe in his work that he has accomplished on the cross. And you can have hope in everything that comes after that, that he will keep, that he will sustain, that he will sanctify, that he will do a work in your heart and life to cause you to grow in obedience to him, that he will bring you eternally secure into his family and everlasting life with him. You can have hope of that in Jesus' resurrection. Because if Jesus was, to quote Paul in Romans, if Jesus was able to, through his death, save his people, how much more so through his life and his resurrection is he able to keep them? When God's people sin and fail, they have a Savior who has made them positionally perfect before God. They have an advocate at the right hand of God the Father, who is faithful and who does not turn his back on them, who does not kick them to the curb or allow them to be cast headlong when they sin and fail. But he keeps them and he saves them. And listen, you can't get that anywhere else. You can't get that anywhere else. You cannot accomplish what Jesus has accomplished for yourself. Every world religion is trying to accomplish something similar in other ways. But it doesn't matter if they wash your body and say the prayers at your funeral, or if you travel to a holy city or bathe in a holy river, or spend all your life trying to do enough good, hoping to outweigh the evil that you've done. You cannot save yourself because when you stand before God, you stand condemned of breaking his law. You are a sinner. So what's to be done? Cry out to God. Believe that this Jesus who loves you so much that he has stood in your place to take the wrath of God against your sin upon himself is faithful. That he is able to save. That he is who he says he is. That he does what he says he does. That he will Give to you his righteousness in place of yours, which doesn't measure up. That he will give you justification, a legal right standing before God. 
that he will bring you into the family of God and you will share with him the inheritance that he has from God his Father. You can't get this anywhere else. Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Stop trying to get it anywhere else. Surrender your life to Christ. Let him do the work of sanctification in your heart and life through his spirit. And be saved. We're going to pray together. We're going to end. I would encourage you, if you have questions about salvation or what God desires from your heart and life, that you would speak to one of the pastors. Justin's here. Reggie's here. I'm here today. We'll take all the time that's necessary. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would glorify the greatness of your holy name in the hearts and lives of your people. That you would receive from us lives that have been laid down, our reasonable sacrifice before you, our worship, that we would live obediently before you in a way that honors you as your spirit testifies to your work in our hearts and lives. We thank you for the accomplishments of Christ and his cross and what you have done to take a people who are far off, who are enslaved to sin, who are your enemies, who deserved your condemnation, and you have given grace and mercy and life and forgiveness and hope and peace. Thank you for keeping us and your patience with us. Cause us to share the gospel and to live out what you have done in our lives, the world around us. We love you, Lord. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.